Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Where does San Diego stand in the United Nations Climate Report? Those events, especially in a place like San Diego, are going to be the ones you're already familiar with. Drought, fire, and flood. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. From climate disasters to political tension, how to cope with high-conflict situations. High conflict stops being about the thing it seems to be about, and it usually is about fear, humiliation, uh, desire to belong, and to make sense of a world that doesn't feel like it makes sense. We'll hear from Olympic medal winner Brian Burrows from Fallbrook, and San Diego's Flicks on Bricks venue highlights screwball comedies. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Cutting emissions now and in the near future could still save humanity from climate catastrophe. That's the one hopeful message in a United Nations report on global climate change. But it won't save us from the climate changes we're already experiencing. More heat waves, fires, floods, and sea level rise. 234 climate scientists contributed to the report by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC. The report contains five scenarios for the future based on how successful the world is at cutting carbon emissions and limiting global warming. As part of KPBS's Climate Desk coverage, joining me is one of the lead authors of the IPCC report, Paul Edwards, Director of the Program on Science, Technology, and Society at Stanford University. Paul, welcome to the program. Thank you, Maureen. The last time the IPCC issued a report on climate change was back in 2013. Can you give us an idea of how the situation has changed since then? It has a number of things that are new. One is that climate change due to human influences is now an established fact. There's no more question about that. The temperature has risen about 1.1 degrees centigrade, which is about 2 degrees Fahrenheit since the 19th century. 
And on the course we're on now, we will probably hit about 1.5 degrees centigrade, nearly three degrees Fahrenheit by around 2035. So we can still stop that if we can reach net zero carbon emissions by 2050. But we have a now a carbon budget. So that means that we know about how much more carbon dioxide we could emit to have a chance of limiting temperature growth to one and a half degrees. And that amount is 400 billion tons for a two out of three chance of limiting the growth to uh, one and a half degrees. Are aspects of climate change happening more quickly than scientists were anticipating back in 2013? I don't think that's changed a lot, but we do know more about the rates of change. And one of the most important of those is sea level rise, which has accelerated even in the last decade. So that means that it will go up more quickly. It's still slow on human timescales. But we also know that we're committed to sea level rise for centuries to even thousands of years with the amount of carbon we've already put into the atmosphere. We also know that there are abrupt changes that could happen. Uh, this report pays more attention to those than some of our previous reports and talks about, for example, what might happen if the West Antarctic ice sheet were to collapse or the Greenland ice sheet were to melt more quickly than anticipated. What does the kind of warming that's expected now actually mean on a practical level to people's lives? Well, it means that there will be more extreme events and they will happen more often. Those events, especially in a place like San Diego, are going to be the ones you're already familiar with, drought, fire and flood. We now are much better at estimating the contribution of climate change to extreme events, and we can see it rising even with respect to individual events. We call that event attribution. So we know that they will, we will have these things. We also know that they may happen in conjunction with each other more often. So we get droughts and also fire at the same time. The strange thing about a place like San Diego and really the entire American Southwest is that we may have both more rain and more drought at the same time, but they come in different ways. We have heavier rainfalls that happen more frequently, but they'll be limited to a shorter period of the year and the soils will dry out more in the summer. Uh, leading to a greater risk of fire in the uh, fire seasons that are getting longer and longer. You know, up until recently, climate scientists have been reluctant to blame climate change for individual weather events like the heat dome or stronger typhoons. Now scientists seem more willing to make that connection. And why is that? That's because we have better models of this and a better understanding of the physical processes under, that underlie them. Uh, it's also because of the way we approach it, which is not to say that climate change causes a, a particular event. That's never true. But more that climate change contributes to the likelihood of particular events. And now we can say much more precisely how much it contributes. Is there any way to reverse the changes that have already happened? We can reverse some, but not all of them. So if we are able to stay within the carbon budget of 40 billion tons remaining, uh, we can limit the, the change in temperature globally to about one and a half degrees centigrade and maybe even bring it down slightly over the coming century. Uh, things like sea level rise and 
rainfall events that I was just talking about will be with us no matter what happens because those are committed from previous in inputs of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. I want to talk a little bit more about sea level rise. What does this uh, amount of sea level rise, 6 to 12 inches by the middle of this century, what does that mean for metropolitan areas along the coasts like San Diego? Uh, of course, everything depends on what the shape of your coast is like. If it's very low-lying, then you will have serious, serious issues. And some places like Miami are going to have worse trouble than a place like San Diego that has cliffs to protect it. But it still means that any port will eventually need to rebuild its infrastructure to take account of the effects of sea level rise and of storm surges that will happen along the coast and erode the cliffs. Do you expect some areas of the world to be affected more by climate change than others? Yes. And one of the unique things about this report, unlike previous ones, is that we break it down into 45 or so individual regions around the world. So in the past, we've always looked mainly at the global scale or the continental scale, and now we're at a much lower level. So the Arctic is expected to warm at double to quadruple the rate of the rest of the planet. Uh, and the, the Antarctic, to a lesser extent, will also warm more than the, the tropics. One of the strange things about our place here in the mid-latitudes, and San Diego is kind of on the southern end of what we call the middle latitudes, is that the, the tropics are essentially moving northward. That is, tropical weather is now moving north into our areas and beginning to affect what we see. That's part of why we have the uh, rain bombs that occur here once in a while during our atmospheric rivers. So yes, it's going to be different in different places, and uh, we have a better idea of what to expect around the world. The IPCC report lists five scenarios for the future based on how successful the world is at limiting carbon emissions. And they range from, uh, you know, making fast and massive pollution cuts to maintaining business as usual. But the report finds the worst scenario is increasingly unlikely. And why is that? Well, in part, it was unlikely even when it was first designed in the 1990s. Uh, it was known as a business-as-usual scenario, but analysis of it since then has shown that it was high even for that period. Now, that doesn't mean it's impossible. It still could happen if we lose all control of carbon emissions as the world uh, moves toward a population of 10 billion people. One thing that has changed for the better is that the turn toward renewable energy sources and greater energy efficiency in all kinds of things have slightly decreased the per capita uh, output on a global basis. What is your overall takeaway message from this massive IPCC report? Well, so the IPCC doesn't recommend particular policies, but it can tell us what will happen if we don't do certain things. And one thing that we know is that we must reduce to net zero carbon emissions by about 2050 to have hope of staying on the path of one and a half degrees centigrade change, which would avoid the worst really catastrophic outcomes. So how we get there is entirely up to uh, governments and politicians and even to firms and cities and states. But we have to cut our carbon emissions to zero and find ways to absorb some of what we have already emitted if we're going to stay on that path. 
I've been speaking with one of the lead authors of the United Nations Climate Change Report, Paul Edwards, Director of the Program on Science, Technology, and Society at Stanford. Paul, thank you so much. Such a pleasure. Thanks so much. Humanity is facing pivotal challenges from climate change to the pandemic and our political discord. How we handle this moment in time could have dire consequences. One of the challenges we'll have to overcome is something called high conflict. Amanda Ripley is an investigative journalist for The Atlantic and a New York Times bestselling author who writes a lot about human behavior. I spoke with Ripley about her recent book, High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out. Here's that interview. So, Amanda, first, what exactly is high conflict? High conflict is the kind of conflict we're seeing a lot of these days. And it's really any conflict that takes on a life of its own as people become more and more certain of their own righteousness and start to make inaccurate assumptions about those who disagree. And eventually, in this kind of conflict, we all make a lot of mistakes and everyone suffers to different degrees. In what ways do you see that playing out in the world today? Well, you start to see conflicts that seem like they don't make any sense anymore. I don't know if you have felt this way, but it's the kind of thing where everything people do to try to end the conflict makes it worse. Um, So just to take an example, and there are many, right? But if you look at the debate over vaccines or wearing masks in school or critical race theory in schools. So high conflict stops being about the thing it seems to be about. And it usually is about fear, humiliation, uh, desire to belong and to make sense of a world that doesn't feel like it makes sense. You know, we also, I think, see a lot of high conflict around climate change, even. And today we just heard uh, about the the UN report, which reveals stark consequences of not changing human behavior and resolving the high conflict that surrounds climate change. What do you make of that? You know, that's a great example of the ways in which our sort of us versus them adversarial approach to conflict has reached the upper limits of its effectiveness, right? Because climate change is is a classic example of how we cannot separate ourselves from one another. We depend on each other all around the world. So any kind of approach to conflict that places one group as superior to the other or dismisses one group or begins to look at it as a fight to be won will not work in that kind of conflict because we need each other. And so that's a great example. And I I think it's the kind of thing that benefits a lot from psychology. You know, for a lot of people, this problem, climate change, is less about policy and more about psychology. Again, it's about fear. It's about a sense of helplessness. It's about a sense of distrust, right? That's very deep. So those are hard problems. And knowing that doesn't fix them. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't create a consensus. But at least you can start to talk about what it's really about. You mentioned fear, and that's also something that you talk about in your book called The Unthinkable, Who Survives When Disaster Strikes and Why? And disasters are something that may happen more frequently as climate change continues. What are some common behaviors of people who don't fall into high conflict and also survive when disaster strikes? In every kind of disaster, whether it's immediate or long-term, like COVID, the initial response for pretty much everyone is a profound period of disbelief and denial. And it's important to expect that, to expect that that is normal and figure out ways 
to push through it if there's enough information suggesting that this is real, right? This is a real threat. Um, that is a hard thing to do, but it is important to recognize that even for people, you know, pilots who have a lot of experience flying commercial aircraft, if they get into a situation where they looks like they have to do a crash landing, the initial response is disbelief, but they have enough training to push through that. So, but it's important to understand that because it helps us expect and plan for more denial than say panic. You know, how do we navigate these big picture issues when even acknowledging that they exist is a matter of, of political debate? What you really want is for them not to get politicized, right? But that's getting harder and harder to do. As soon as things get politicized, as we keep seeing, right, uh, you kind of lose control of the conversation, the facts stop mattering. And so part of what I have found to be helpful, and, and again, there's no easy solution to this, right, is to first of all, try to investigate that understory. What is this fight really about so we can have the right fight? Another thing to do is to avoid some of the tripwires that pretty reliably lead to high conflict, sort of make things worse. One of those is humiliation. You want to try to avoid humiliating your enemy. There's a great line from Nelson Mandela where he said, there's nobody more dangerous than one who has been humiliated, even when you humiliate him rightly. Because what you end up doing is really energizing your opposition and they will dig in around whatever it is. So that's that's one thing to be just more savvy about if you want to succeed in whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. You know, from climate change to this pandemic and our political divide, what's the consequence of not resolving high conflict? Well, we can see it. Um, you know, I called my book High Conflict because, uh, which is a term of art that actually comes from family law and psychology. It, you know, started out by looking at these high conflict divorces, which are divorces that get stuck in perpetual negative, hostile emotions, and they just stay in the courts for years and years. And the people who suffer the most, of course, are the, the kids, right, in those families. And the same thing happens writ large with high conflict of the political variety, right? And you can see that happening now as uh, all of these schools are in such turmoil trying to reopen when, you know, it's kids who have suffered a great deal by not having in-person school for the past year and a half. And now there's a risk that they might have more disruption because the adults can't work together. So this is, you know, it is a, a painful thing to watch. It's sort of like watching a train wreck. On the other hand, it is a universal human behavior, this kind of high conflict behavior. And, and it, understanding that this is not unique to the United States, it's not unique to Republicans or Democrats, has been helpful to me because then it becomes much more predictable. And one thing I can say for sure is in high conflict, you don't want to do the intuitive thing. You want to do the counterintuitive thing and you want to do it carefully if you want to escape this kind of endless spiral. I've been speaking with Amanda Ripley, investigative journalist and author of High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jade. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, 
we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. An effort to improve California's air quality could have unintended consequences for sport fishing. KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne spoke to boat owners who say a new proposal could cost them their businesses. Captain Joe Casilla says his company is finally making a comeback after COVID robbed him of a year of business. Ever since May, it pretty much took off. And I'd say because of the pent-up demand, we're really close to being back to normal. Captain Joe has owned Sea Star Sport Fishing in Oceanside for the last 40 years. And we do uh, sport fishing trips. We do sea life adventures, which is whales, dolphins, birds. We do floating science lab with science labs. We do that uh, with elementary and high school uh, students. And then we also do the burials at sea. But just as business is back up and running, he has a new worry about some proposed regulations to improve air quality. The California Air Resources Board says current commercial boat engines are old and put out polluting fumes. Karen Caesar is a spokesperson for CARB. California has the worst air quality in the nation, and we have these these federal uh, standards that we have to meet, and and it's 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 often painful, but we have to we have to make these regulations if we want. Uh, clean air to breathe. CARB wants boat owners to upgrade to newer, less polluting engines. But the engines they're requiring don't exist in the U.S. for sport fishing vessels. There's no no manufacturer in the United States makes them, but yet they're going to require us to put them in our boats. Well, if they're not there, how can you do that? The engines are made in Europe, but they're so big they physically don't fit on the fishing boats. And some of these boats are not going to be able to accommodate the equipment because there's equipment that you're going to have to add. CARB acknowledges the problem. David Kiros is a CARB manager and says if a boat can't be upgraded... It would need to be retired from service, potentially sold in an out-of-state market. Captain Joe said that isn't a possibility. We're, nobody's going to do that. We can't do that. That basically takes us out of business. CARB suggests replacing old boats with new ones that meet the requirements. To actually build a new boat to replace what I have, anywhere from 1.2 to 1.5 million dollars. And that's just one boat. So multiply that by how many boats, it's not going to happen. We can't do it. It's, it's not possible. If the regulations are adopted later this year, boat owners will have six years to make the change. CARB suggests that during that time, sport fishing businesses raise their prices in order to start saving money for a boat loan. Frank Rossetti is the owner of H&M Landing, the largest landing on the West Coast. The customer base for these boats, for this type of activity, are the folks who can't afford to buy their own boat. They can't afford everything that goes along with owning their own boat, such as a slip, registration of that craft, maintenance of that watercraft, etc. What we're doing now is we are beginning the gentrification of recreational fishing. He said these regulations would devastate this industry and all the businesses that support it. Right here, right outside my door right now, there's, there's over 2,000 jobs that would immediately go away. Those are the directly impacted crew members. 
And we're not talking about their families and what that means to them. But immediately those jobs would evaporate. Captain Joe and Ersetti hope CARB will consider an upgrade to the next cleanest engine that is easily available and physically feasible. Every one of these boats, every one of these boat owners would be lined up, standing by, ready to up tier to tier three so that we can continue working. Well, so we would hope that the conversation uh, would include some, include some kind of a compromise because everybody, all of us owners, operators, we're all for clean air, believe me. CARB will be holding two more public comment meetings in November before the regulations are adopted. Tanya Thorne, KPBS News. The Tokyo Olympics wrapped up this past weekend with the U.S. leading in overall medal count. One of those medals was won by Brian Burroughs, who is from Fallbrook. He got a bronze for team trap shooting. He spoke with California Report host Saul Gonzalez. Here's that interview. What was your Olympic experience like? Uh, Life-changing, honestly. Uh, it's just one of those crazy trips where you go, uh, you leave, and you come back, and you've accomplished something that you've worked on for your entire life, and it still hasn't really fully hit me, but it's, uh, it's been a good couple weeks. Has there been a single minute that's gone by, honestly, where you haven't thought to yourself, hey, I'm an Olympic medalist? Actually, there's a bunch of minutes where I forget that I am, and then I look over and I see it or I feel it in my pocket because it never leaves my side now. And uh, I'm like, wow, I medaled at the Olympics. Kind of surprises me. Let's talk about the Olympic Games and COVID. These Olympics were staged at a very bizarre time in world history and public health history. Did that affect it in any substantial way for you? Did you think you had a strange Olympics? Did you had did you think you had something less than a normal Olympics? I don't know about less than normal Olympics, but it was different than what I thought it would be from the respect where you know, there was no crowd. There was no nobody was cheering there's nobody in the stands you know you think about when you you're on the podium and you raise your hand and you're super excited and you look out into you know a screaming crowd and all that energy that you're feeding off of and we just didn't really have that you know there's maybe 10 people in the stands so that was different and there's cameras all around which was great because my family and friends got to experience that with me but it was just different in that sense. It was quiet. And how about life back in the Olympic Village? Were you able to meet other athletes, both from the U.S. and from other countries? Do you think you had a good amount of interaction with, with other people competing there? Um, for the most part, uh, the countries and the teams they kept to themselves. And, you know, it's fair enough, too. You know, it's, every person is a potential to take you out of the Olympics. You know, if you test positive, they test positive. So I definitely got to spend some time with some of the other U.S. athletes, water polo, baseball, things like that. But the other countries, outside of going to the shooting range, we didn't really get to spend too much time with the other countries, which I think is different from past Olympics. I know you're still wrapping your head around the experience. You're still in the afterglow of it all. But, but what do you think happens? How does this change your life in the coming days, weeks, months, even years? Have, have you thought about that a bit? 
Well, they say once you're an Olympian, you're Olympian forever. Uh, there are no past Olympians. So I've entered into a fraternity of sorts as part of the Olympic, you know, being part of the Olympics. And there's different events and there's a whole, I guess, society of Olympians. So that's one way that my life, I guess, has changed. But just being able to tell my family, friends, my kids, my grandkids, and show them that I went to the Olympics and I medaled, I think it's just going to be, you know, a change to my life forever and maybe open some doors that wouldn't otherwise be open. But it's just fun to experience and share that that moment and an Olympic medal with other people. You know, I try not to like show it off, but I do want to like show people like, hey, this is what a medal looks like because not many people have held one or seen one. So um, I definitely like to show other people what it's all about. All right, that was Brian Burroughs, Olympic bronze medalist in trap shooting for the United States. Brian, thanks so much for joining us today. And more importantly, congratulations. Thank you. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me. That was local Olympian Brian Burroughs speaking with the California Report's Saul Gonzalez. American icons of comedy include members of all ethnicities and races. But quick, name the top Native American comedians that come to mind. Don't feel too badly if you couldn't think of any. Author Cliff Nesterhoff has written about comedy for years, and his latest book is about the community of Native American talent that's been misunderstood, stereotyped, and often thought not to exist at all. Nesterhoff's latest book is called We Had a Little Real Estate Problem, The Unheralded Story of Native Americans in Comedy. Reporter Peter Gilstrap has more. The book, We Had a Little Real Estate Problem, is named for Charlie Hill's signature joke, but the subtitle is no punchline. The Unheralded Story of Native Americans and Comedy. Here's author Cliff Nesteroff. It's a very delicate situation being a non-Native author diving into the realm of uh, Indigenous studies of any kind, and it's controversial as well. What I really tried to do was to let people speak for themselves. One of those people is comedian and writer Joey Clift. There's definitely, you know, a, a stereotype of the, you know, stoic Indian who's best friends with an eagle and flute music plays whenever they're pontificating about whatever. And, uh, you know, that's just not reality. I mean, some of us are stoic. Some of us are also real funny. Clift is an enrolled member of the Cowlitz tribe and was raised on the Tulalip Reservation just north of Seattle. He says the misconceptions about Native Americans aren't confined to simply determining who's funny or not. I've had grown adults who went to college, live in Los Angeles, work in comedy, so they theoretically should be like fairly educated, ask me questions like, if I was born in a teepee, if my reservation had electricity growing up. Yes, it had plenty of electricity, and he had a TV set. Clift spent hours soaking up TV shows like The Simpsons, Family Guy, and Conan O'Brien. He saw his future in those shows, but how to make it happen, that was the problem. Because I didn't necessarily see any Native American comedians on TV growing up, I didn't think I was allowed to work in comedy. So um, instead, uh, I went to school for what to me was the next best thing, which was to be like a small market TV weather guy. It's days like today that make me wish I could cut the sleeves off my news jacket. It was that nice. In 2010, at the urging of his college professors, 
Cliff decided to take a stab at a life beyond just predicting sunny skies. So when I moved to LA, one of the first things that I did was just Google Native American TV writers or Native American comedians and see if anything came up. It did. Clift ended up at a Writers Guild diversity event that changed his life. And there was one Native American writer on the panel. So he very quickly introduced me to uh, kind of Native Hollywood, the loose collection of Native people working in the entertainment industry. Clift began doing stand-up in L.A. In 2018, he created the annual Native American Comedy Showcase for the Hollywood sketch comedy group Upright Citizens Brigade. He's currently writing for the animated Netflix series Spirit Rangers, created by Native American showrunner Carissa Valencia. The show's entirely Native American writing staff is a Hollywood first. Because I've been featured in this book, there are a lot of like younger up-and-coming Native comedians who have reached out to me and said, hey, I read your chapter. It really resonated with me. We should, get, we should do a Zoom and talk, and can you give me any advice? So I think that it's a really good... Um, you know, a really good bat signal for Native comedy, letting Native comedians know that we exist. But Native Americans getting a legitimate foothold in show business on and off screen, that's a new situation. That's the late actor Iron Eyes Cody as the Lakota warrior Crazy Horse in the 1954 film Sitting Bull. You might also recognize Cody from the character he played known as the Crying Indian in a popular 1970s PSA on littering. He had a tear running down his face as he witnessed America being consumed by garbage. Some people have a deep abiding respect for the natural beauty that was once this country. In real life, Cody was an Italian-American named Aspera de Corti who made a career wearing an eagle feather headdress. He posed as a native in over a hundred films and maintained that identity off-screen, too. But this casting arrangement was not unique. Anthony Quinn, Charles Bronson, Burt Lancaster, Rock Hudson, Audrey Hepburn, Johnny Depp, Burt Reynolds, Boris Karloff, and Elvis Presley all portrayed Native Americans. For the better part of a century, Hollywood has gone out of its way not only to exclude Native Americans from serious acting roles, but to create and perpetuate negative stereotypes. Here's Cliff Nesteroff. Westerns were among the first movies ever made. And by the year 1911, a contingent of indigenous leaders were already registering formal complaints with the White House saying, can you do something to stop the spread of racist misinformation appearing in silent movies? Those requests went ignored. And most of the stereotypes that were established were a dehumanization tactic. So, oh, they're, they're unsmiling, they're unfeeling. If somebody doesn't have feelings, it doesn't matter what you do to them. You know, another thing that is confusing about being half-breed is like, like Thanksgiving, for instance, you know? As a, a part of me, like I'm over there cooking and then I'm eating, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm being an Indian and, and a pilgrim. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm catching diseases and I'm giving them. I'm Adrian Chelopa, I love you guys. Adrian Chelopa grew up on the Kiowa Comanche Apache Reservation in Oklahoma. 
As a kid, her father turned her on to Monty Python, Cheech and Chong, and Mel Brooks. She watched Brooks' Western comedy Blazing Saddles almost daily. After college, she was working a straight job at a bank when she finally decided to try stand-up in her early 20s. It was a huge risk because I was actually about six months pregnant with my second child. But the way that I looked at it is it can't be any worse than what I've already been through because I grew up in so much poverty that worst case scenario, I would tuck my towel between my legs and go live with my mom in a trailer park. That didn't have to happen. But unlike many comics, Chalapa resisted moving to Hollywood. Instead, she lives in Albuquerque, maneuvering her comedy career around her four young sons. My opinion of the industry is that it it is elitist because it's a pay-to-play thing. You gotta pay for training, you gotta pay for headshots, you gotta pay to live in LA, it's expensive. And then what ends up happening is you do exclude middle America and specifically natives on reservations because the idea is, no, you have to come to us. She gigged at tribal communities all over the country, from nighttime outdoor shows lit by car headlights to reservation casino stages. Pre-COVID, she was averaging four jobs a month. I chased every stage, every opportunity, I had no ego and pride in the matter. Like, if they were like, okay, you got five minutes in front of people who hate you, I would have been like, great, (laughs) I'll be there. So, I'm I'm Native American. Uh, I'm sure you guys can tell. Uh, You can't tell. You can't can't tell because you guys think we're all dead. (laughs) You know, culture's cool. Language is cool. You know, tribal stuff is all cool, but humor is the foundation. That is what keeps us just thriving. Because without that humor, man, you know, things get really dark. As the pandemic drags on, Adrienne Chelepaw is taking care of her kids and focusing on acting. The stand-up gigs are dead on the vine. It's still a struggle for natives in Hollywood, but she says Nesteroff's book is a positive step. Really, my hope is that it will just open doors to more comedians or at least let industry folks know that, you know, we're not a relic or we're not we're not an antique or we have iPhones. <laughs> we're not stoic. My name is Charlie Hill. Hill, that's the family name. Used to be mountain, but I shortened it. You know, showbiz, you get that little edge. Charlie Hill died in 2013 without ever reaching stardom. He was still doing his real estate joke. But his unique stature in the comedy world of four decades ago showed young native comics and writers that taking their skills to Hollywood was not impossible. And to this day, he's still the only Native American comic to have made it to The Tonight Show. That was Peter Gilstrap for The California Report. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, 
Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. The Anthenaeum's Flicks on the Bricks returns this month for its 15th year with the best screwball sparring matches. The outdoor film series was curated by KPBS film critic Beth Accomando, who will be hosting the screenings and is here to talk about the films. Welcome, Beth. Thank you. So why did you decide on screwball comedy for the theme of uh, the film series? Well, it's always tough to decide what to screen because there's so many movies that I'd love to show. But with movie theaters being closed for more than a year and dealing with COVID and divisive politics, I just decided we needed to treat ourselves to something delightful and entertaining and distracting. And screwball comedy delivers on all of those. And how do you define screwball comedy? Screwball comedy is a very distinctly American style of romantic comedy, and it emerged from a combination of a need for escape during the Depression, a reaction to the restrictive production code, and then a rise in sound technology. So the term screwball fittingly comes from a very American sport, and that's baseball. So a screwball is a deliberately erratic pitch designed to confuse the batter who doesn't know what to expect. And that perfectly describes what these films are like. So screwball comedies are fueled by the lunacy of farce, punched up by the violent action of slapstick, and then topped off with witty dialogue that tickles your brain like champagne bubbles. And everything is delivered at breakneck speed. And for me, a true screwball comedy has to be from Hollywood in the 1930s or 40s. It sounds like it's right on time. So the theme for the series is screwball sparring matches. So what can people expect? Curating is about looking at the wealth of possibilities and then only being able to show a few things. But I'm very grateful to the Athenaeum for allowing me to, again, choose some films that I can share with their audience. So it was about narrowing my choices. And one thing that's really distinctive about Screwball is that it's often a battle of the sexes, but with surprisingly equal and well-matched combatants. So I decided to focus on a trio of sparring matches featuring the best players of the Screwball comedies. And you're starting this Thursday with His Girl Friday, which features Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell. Why did you choose this one? Okay, well, how could I not? Uh, Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell are just spectacular under the direction of Howard Hawks. And he's given us so many strong, smart female characters in his career. So this film is a remake of the play The Front Page. And instead of two men, it transforms the newspaper editor and his reporter into a man and his ex-wife and then lets the sparks fly. So someone estimated that the normal rate of dialogue in a typical film is about 90 words a minute. And his Girl Friday has a delivery rate that clocks in at 240 words a minute. So here's a sample of that. You mean you're not coming back to work on the paper? All right, Mr. Burns, for the first time today. Uh 
I've got a better offer. Huh? You bet I've got a better All offer. All right, go on, take it, work for somebody else. That's the gratitude I get. Oh, I wish you'd What were you when you came here five years ago? A little college girl from a school of journalism. Oh. I took a doll-faced hick. Well, you wouldn't take me if I hadn't been doll-faced. Oh, why should I? I thought it'd be a novelty to have a face around here, a man could look at without shuddering. Listen, Walter. Listen, I made a great reporter out of you, Hildy, but you won't be half as good on any other paper, and you know it. We're I mean, a team. That's what we are. You need me, and I need you, and the paper needs both Americans. They're talking fast. They're talking fast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and saying a whole lot. All right. You turn to another Hawks film for 20th century. What can people expect from this film? So it's almost impossible to talk about screwball comedies without mentioning Carol Lombard, who just seemed to have been built for this style of comedy. So in 20th century, Hawks pairs Lombard with the great John Barrymore, who just revels in the histrionics of his down-on-his-luck Broadway impresario, who's trying to get Carol Lombard's character to come back and star in his play. So this is a take-the-gloves-off battle where no blow is too low, and here's a taste of their sparring. You horrible fake. Be a man. You're not going to jump out of any window. Ha! Trying to make me believe you cheap hands. You can't talk to me like that. You forget who I am. I'll tell you what you are, a fake. Go on, jump. Kill yourself. You washwoman's daughter. What did you call me? You <sighs> soaking yourself in perfume like a hired girl. Half undressed for other men. You don't fool me. Okay, it's just a lot of fun to watch these two go at it. I mean, my goodness, okay. <laughs> you got to have thick skin, huh? No. Oh, yeah. For that one, yes. <laughs> All right, you close out the series on August 26th with Frank Capra's Oscar winning It Happened One Night. What does this film offer? It Happened One Night is just a perfect example of screwball comedy. It has a crazy heiress. It's a sex comedy without sex. It has the depression in its periphery, yet it delivers wonderful escapism. And it has Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert at their finest. So in this scene, they pretend to be a married couple having a fight. Oh, is that so? Say, how many times have I told you to stop butting in when I'm having an argument? Well, you don't have to lose your temper. You don't have to lose your temper. That's what you said the other time, too. Every time I try to protect you. The other night at the Elf's Dance, when that big Swede made a pass at you. He didn't make a pass at me. I told you a million times. Oh, no, I saw him. Kept pawing you all over the dance floor. He didn't. You were drunk. Ah, nuts. You're just like your old man. What's oh. a plumber's daughter? Always a plumber's oh. daughter. Then an ounce of brains in your whole family. Oh, Peter, what you've got for them, I won't see. Oh, shut up. Well, you see what you've done? Sorry, Mr. Warren, but you see, we've got to check up on everybody. We're looking for a girl by the name of Ellen Andrews, you know, the daughter of that big Wall Street mob. Yeah, well, it's too bad you're looking for a plumber's daughter. Quick baller! Quick baller! I told you they were a perfectly nice married couple. <laughs> <laughs> So I adore Frank Capra, and he's a director who's known for what he's called Capricorn. So unlike the unsentimental Howard Hawks in 20th century, Capra invests all his characters with a great deal of humanity. So I'm really torn when I'm deciding on what films to show between showing something lesser known like Easy Living or True Confession. But something like this, like It Happened One Night, is just a classic, and it's such a joy every time. 
Beth, thank you for talking about the upcoming Screwball comedy series at the Anthenaeum's Flicks on the Bricks. You can also check out Beth's Cinema Junkie podcast all about screwball comedy at kpbs.org slash cinema junkie. Beth, thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.